Welcome, everybody, to Recovery Machine. My name's Nathan, joined, as always, by co-host Corey. How are you doing, co-host Corey? Hey, I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? I'm good. Yeah, I'm doing pretty good here. I see you've got a new sign in the background there, liking that. Yeah, thank you. air sign, looking very professional. you got the two frogs there. Everything's going well over on your side. (laughs) It is, yeah. (laughs) So we're going to, what we're going to do today is... uh, provide the second part or the uh, part two of our stress test series here. And uh, so that's us discussing things that stress us out at work, I guess. Yeah. And how that contributed to substance use at work or urges and cravings at work or our deteriorating mental health at work. Correct. Or all of the above. In, or in, all of the above. I would say in all of cases, all of the above. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I think we've got uh, maybe three or four of these left each, and we will get started immediately. What do you got? Yeah, the first one may seem like kind of an obvious one, but but it's fatigue. And I think any nurse or emergency department staff knows this feeling in particular, though any healthcare worker or any anybody who's just working a, a job with long hours and has a lot of life going on outside of work, but in the examples that I'm thinking of specifically, it relates to the baseline is a 12 hour shift. And in many cases, those 12 hour shifts were extended to 16 hours. And because we are under a professional license, nurses have a responsibility to not walk away if there's an unsafe level of staffing or if there's no replacement for them. And now it's, It's very different. So we're talking about not walking away while you're at work and you've got a team of uh, a collection of of patients that you're caring for. It may be that a, your replacement doesn't show up, but in most cases, particularly in the last couple of years, there just isn't anyone to replace you period. Mm -hmm. So there's quite a lot of pressure applied by management to stay and to not walk away. And I have seen an experienced the threat of if you leave, you could be reported to the college for, you know, irresponsibly walking away from your patients. Wow. Even if you feel fatigued or ill or just not prepared to do your job properly. Yeah. So the fatigue policy, to my knowledge in all health authorities in our province, is that 16 hours is the maximum that they can have you work. So if you're working a day shift and you start at seven o'clock in the morning, that means you're staying there until 11 o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. And so by that time, the, the night shift has come on almost universally. The staffing requirements of an emergency department go down pretty significantly at night. And there's mm-hmm. almost always less staff on. But so within their fatigue policy, they're allowed to get you to stay for up to 16 hours. Isn't that a little <laughs> ridiculous? Yeah, of course it is. And in, in, I don't think anyone argues that 16 hours is, is an unsafe length of time for someone to be not just working, but working in a potentially life saving or life threatening field, you know, that you, you know, 15 and a half hour mark, you got 30 minutes left in that 16 hour shift. You might still have to make really vital life saving decisions and be as mentally acute as you were at seven o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Now there's something to be said for being in the mix and knowing what's going on. Uh, what I mean by that is you could say, well, 
let's just get somebody fresh in there every four hours. Mm -hmm. But if you increase the turnover of staff too much, what happens is there's a decrease in continuity of care. In other words, the person doesn't know what happened this morning, which may be pertinent to a patient's case that night. So there's something to be said there, but I think 16 hours is, is more towards the ridiculous side as far as you're going to get more mistakes accumulating. I'm sure if we took a look at that closely, you'd have a lot of mistakes accumulating even after, I mean, when I'm working in a busy store, I notice a decrease in my ability to manage tasks. Uh, it, it takes, I have to take a pause or kind of a rest in between, you know, if, if there's a lot of decisions being made or a lot of kind of detailed work after about six hours, I mean, I just, there's a certain type of fatigue that sets in that I think makes me more prone to mistakes. Yeah. Uh, there's ways that you can mitigate that by slowing down and taking extra steps to be, to be careful, but that's just eight hours. I mean, you're 16. I, I think maybe uh, just putting it out there, if, if that was decreased even to, you know, made, maybe made mandatory uh, a maximum of 12, you'd still have enough continuity there. So you've got communication with the next person who's coming in and patient care wouldn't be compromised in that respect, but you'd still be able to do your job effectively without oh, yeah. being over the top fatigued. Oh yeah, of course. And and so relating that to a trigger for, well, either a trigger for mental health and a trigger trigger for, for substance use, we know like it's a, it's a fact that, you know, there's the, the phrase halt is used in, in recovery programs, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, and tired is a big trigger for people either in, in early recovery or people who are still actively using. And in the case of our, ourselves or other healthcare workers who have used opiates to, to cope, we generally have the trait of, of the opiate having a stimulant effect, particularly sort of initially or at a certain titrated dose, it can really kind of bring you up. Mm-hmm. And, and once, once you discover that, once that link is made, it, it's just, you know, that you got something that's going to push you, push you through that last stretch of, of a, of a couple of hours, say. It's um, a reliable source of energy and that becomes very difficult to say no to. It does. Uh, fatigue is a, is a really good one. I mean, that for me was probably the cornerstone as far as what kept me going and what made it very difficult to stop. And it wasn't just the physical addiction. It was having that uh, very effective crutch or making it through long shifts. I mean, it was like, uh, just kind of like a magic potion, right? Absolutely. And then the next thing I was going to say was I worked, um, there were a number of times where I worked two 16 hour shifts in a row, or I would do a 16 hour shift and then come back in the morning. So I would be there from 7am till 11 o'clock at night and then have to be back at seven o'clock the next morning. So that tired thing, that fatigue thing is, is now present when you're starting your shift. Like mm-hmm. you, you just can't have worked 16 hours, go home and sleep for, well, you're not going to sleep for, you're not sleeping for eight hours. You might sleep for five mm-hmm. and there's just no way that you're going to be physically and mentally refreshed and ready to go without feeling pretty significant fatigue going in. So you're, you're setting the, the next day up for more opiates. Yeah. 
yeah, that's like a way of guaranteeing that you're going to be addicted. You know, it kind of is right. Like I kind of, I, I, I realized that, that it was not just, it was not just that moment, but it like, it created a, a sustainability for the substance use. That's right. Yeah. No, very much the same in my case as well. And yeah, it's one of the reasons why I don't work full time anymore too. I realized that that's, that they're just, it's too much of a temptation once you get to that, you know, if you run into a, you're in a busy week and it's those last couple of days and if it just it's, it's not fair to myself. Yeah. And again, like it's, um, I know uh, we've talked about this so many times before, but there's such a, um, misinformation or misunderstanding about what that, what the effect of the drug is. It is very much like a cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. It's more similar to a cup of coffee than I think people realize if you work that way, if it's a, if it has that effect on you. Yeah. Yeah. More so because like, Coffee can make you feel less tired and sometimes you get a, a mood, a little bit of a mood elevation from it, but mm-hmm. not like in this, in this way, it's, it, it's calming yet stimulating in a, in a way that's hard to describe. It's uh, kind of perfect for work actually. Well, in an emergency department and it fits in with my other triggers that I'll talk about today. It's just, it is just that like I, I just don't know how there aren't more people who have th- who develop that issue. Yeah. Well, we never we never know for sure how many people have no. developed that issue, but no. Yeah, that's a that's a great one. Great one to bring up. You're up. Mine uh I've got uh, this is just a a thing for people who are in the field of pharmacy. I think some of us maybe chose the field um, as opposed to say uh, going into something like nursing or or uh, getting into something where you're more hands-on with patients because in pharmacy while you're dealing with the public a lot you have a little bit of a barrier usually between you and the public so it's not like I guess we don't uh, for you I you probably wouldn't bat an eye if uh, if somebody came in and like showed you their like took off their shirt and you know a lady showed you or uh, under boob fungal infection or something, right? Correct. Correct. Yeah, like you'd be like, oh yeah, I've seen that a million times. Yeah. But when you're working in a in a community pharmacy and somebody does that, it kind of takes you by surprise. And that's that's I've had a, a few strange events where like I've been out in the aisle, so you're in the OTC section, and I've had two women, uh, older ladies, just pull up their shirt and pull out their boob and and lift it up so they can show me what's going on underneath there in the middle of a story. It's just, it's odd and not that big of a deal or whatever, but those type of things happen. And they kind of, you know, it <laughs> makes you pause for a second. It's a little awkward, but I had one situation where I was working in a store that was right next to a very popular walk-in clinic. And at the time it was very popular because the doctor was, well, he's just very accessible and uh, fairly free with the prescription pad. So there's always a big lineup in the parking lot in the morning to get into that clinic. And I had a guy come in who didn't want to wait. He had a ur- what he felt was an urgent problem going on. And he just, I don't know if he was, you know, maybe he was, you know, it was early in the morning. Maybe he'd been out all, all night drinking. I'm not sure what his deal was, but he just came in and just uh, pulled out his pulled out his penis to show me. He had some spots on there that he was worried about, and he wanted me to diagnose his uh, his problem and let him know whether or not 
he had a sexually transmitted disease because he didn't want to wait in line to see the doctor and 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 go that route but you know there was a another lady in the store at the time and <laughs> it's as a pharmacist just you don't expect that no <laughs> and also there's nothing i can do like First of all, I'm not going to examine your penis. It's not part of my job. I didn't, I'm not getting paid enough to do that. In my opinion, I, I'm just there to, you know, fill prescriptions and give you some advice about <laughs> cough, cold, whatever your problem is, but not, not that. Furthermore, I don't have access to the diagnostics. And even if I wanted to treat empirically, we still don't have the prescribing power to, you know, right. just dish out those meds. So yeah, I, 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 that kind of behavior to me is uh, disconcerting, I guess. It kind of wakes you up and jolts you out of your normal day-to-day -day routine. But yeah. it happens from time to time. And I'm sure there's other pharmacists who have experienced similar things. Oh, I'm sure. I'm yeah. sure. And then what about your female coworkers too? Like that could potentially be a really invasive and, and inappropriate Moment. Well, yeah, I would have thrown them out if there was, I was there in the store by myself. And uh, mm. the only reason I, I mean, I asked them to put it away, of course, but I would have like acted differently had there been female colleagues behind me. <laughs> but uh, the only other person in the store at the time was a elderly lady on the other side. And luckily I don't think she was, she was, wasn't paying attention to what was going on over there, but I just, you know, it's not something that uh, most people do. And not something I would do. I know. No, and the violation of boundaries is 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 a violation, and it it does create stress and angst there for sure. It's real violence, Corey. Real violence. <laughs> <laughs> violence to my eyeballs. Yeah. <laughs> so my next one were, um, and I'm kind of clumping a couple things together, but environmental triggers specifically and sound specifically and an emergency department if you have ever even been there as a as a guest or as a patient or for those who have worked there the volume can reach incredible levels and the volume of alarms and mm. of of like digital and electronic alarms particularly with heart monitors IV pumps, ventilators in some cases. Um, could that environment, I mean, could they find a way to make it more stressful or is it maxed out? I mean, it's like, I suppose they could be dropping bombs randomly or just setting off firecrackers. But besides that, I mean, it's like a McDonald's on steroids with all the devices that are beep, 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 the sirens and, you know, people are attacking you and throwing chairs and <laughs> I, I, like, what kind of a place to work is this really? Yeah, for sure. And, and it's relentless, mm. relentless. And it is meant to, and nurses do risk getting desensitized to those alarms and like alarm fatigue, you could call it like where <laughs> alarm fatigue, where there's so, there's such constant beeping and alarms and for different reasons <laughs> yeah. that you can, you, you, things that you might double check in the first hour eight hours into hearing these constant beeping and alarms going off, you may, maybe like a, you know, the boy who cried wolf where you, you don't check it as, as rapidly. And of course you don't want to risk that. So you're always, it's 
always grabbing your attention. It's always keeping you on and it's always keeping you on edge mm-hmm. hearing that alarm constantly. And there's right. a level of like, I don't, I would love to see what was happening to my brain waves and my heart rate as those alarms were going off. Yeah. And then if it was a, if there was a more critical, say a more critical cardiac rhythm that would happen, then the alarm would get more <laughs> piercing and grating and like agitating. Right. And this would be all day. This would be all day. And I, it's, I, I'm not saying at the time, I don't think I realized that it was a trigger, but I certainly realized that it was agitating, that it was disruptive, that it was, that it, like I said, it just created an environment where you not only couldn't feel relaxed or at ease, but where you felt always heightened and stimulated. Yeah. It reminds me of a study I saw once about elderly couples. They did hearing tests on uh, older gentlemen and found that their their hearing at the frequency and pitch of their wife's voice was actually significantly decreased over the years. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to figure out whether that was like a selective blocking of that, like as in they're actually actively trying not to listen or if if there's some sort of uh, almost like a fatigue, like you say, that sets in to that, that specific range. But I wonder if you took somebody who is a veteran nurse of an emergency department, and I don't know what the median career length is in that mm-hmm. line of work, but would they actually have maybe parts of their hearing that were now, and not necessarily because the, you know, it was an actual physical damage to the ear, but just the mind has toned down its response to that stimuli because it's so constant and pervasive. Oh yeah. I think, I think so for sure. And you can, and I can think of times where I saw a difference in response from those nurses to the alarms, to the things going on, right. That they they had a, they certainly had a a decreased sensitivity And, and maybe in, I'd have to think about that if, if over the years of me being in that environment, did my sensitivity change? It certainly, I, I was certainly aware that it always stressed me out and would like, kind of like, oh, like grate your teeth to it kind of. And then you got, you know, artificial neon dreadful lighting. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the, I, I, what I do remember is like the positive effect like the the almost like intensely chemical effect. If you've been working in the ER for a, a stretch of a, like one of the six, like a sixteen hour shift that I was talking about, one of the goals in the ER is always to try to get the lighting down at night. If the ER settles down, if a fewer patients come in, you want people to sleep, mm-hmm. and so they would by ten or eleven o'clock at night they try to bring the lighting down, oh, and like yeah. that had like that had like a almost opiate like effect, right? Where you could really like. Oh, you can yeah. feel that. Yeah, yeah. And I think that your it was literally your body responding to just like bringing the stimuli down a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we would have, I remember discussions about, well, what if that makes the nurses too tired? Well, I don't, <laughs> what, what if it's just allowing them to have a fucking second to, <laughs> to think <laughs> or to process or to breathe? <laughs> They want to keep you like at a, a state of uh, maximum stimulation the whole shift through. So it just absolutely yeah. fries your endocrine system. Eh? Yeah. You know, I, I've been watching this, this show called the bear and it's about a kitchen in, in uh, Chicago and about the chef. And 
and like the level of volume that's always going on in the show and it's just always clanking and banging and shouting and mm-hmm. and that's what it reminds me of it reminds me of my old job yeah yeah and i think people depending on how they start out in that environment and how it goes for them and their specific genetic makeup they can develop either a uh, an attenuation to that background mm-hmm. noise and they become used to it it just kind of settles in or it gradually increases and we see this with people with uh, post-traumatic stress yeah. where they've been in uh, whether it's well nurses i think from what i've heard anyway and the nurses i've seen with ptsd they they all discuss how the the sounds the smells uh the lighting all those things in the hospital can can be triggers for massive kind of sympathetic responses right yeah and i'm glad you said that because i was going to mention like this is why exposure therapy is such an has become such a we hear about it a lot in our community that nurses are are being put through exposure therapy to re-acclimatize to that environment mm-hmm. because it is the environmental triggers are so real and uh and it's if you're using drugs it's like pavlov's bell yeah, the dog. right right yeah exactly yeah. you're back you're back in the environment you know yeah <laughs> Yes, very challenging. Uh, my next one is uh, kind of uh, something that I've always thought about the College of Pharmacy of BC and all colleges actually that uh, represent or you know claim to represent healthcare professions is that their mandates for the colleges has always been to protect the public. That's what they'll tell you. That's what they're there for and that's what they do. And yet... We, the healthcare professional, are required to pay a fee, usually a yearly annual service fee, to be a member mm-hmm. of these colleges. And it's uh, like mine is coming up here in a couple of weeks, and they decided they're going to crank it up some more. So now we're up over $800. And I've always thought, well, I wouldn't mind paying that if there was a, if there was regulation that was going on that actually helped maintain the integrity of the profession and the viability of the profession because it's it's a difficult thing to do when you're managing any kind of a healthcare model that's also half commercial right as pharmacy is but from what i see it's just as far as the college is concerned that's that they really are just it's kind of a, a thing that's there to police us and it's a it seems to be a one-way street so my question is if if the mandate is to protect the public then get the public to pay for it i don't Mm. understand why i am required to pay i mean this would be like it would be like me paying tax dollars towards the rcmp but then not being able to call them when there's a problem on my end only <laughs> only paying them yeah. for uh giving me speeding tickets and stuff like that me yeah like i it doesn't uh there's no accountability or repercussions for voicing problems on the other end of the you know for the for the public so why in the hell do i have to pay for it mm-hmm. yeah you know? exactly and yeah i don't know it's just something that uh, has bothered me and the, the fee just increases and increases and yeah, I don't know, man. Also the, the fact that the college is largely funded, that's their, the most of their money comes from membership fees mm-hmm. 
and they're required to produce a budget that is publicly accessible. And you can look at that budget and you can see how much money is coming in. So they charge fees for any, you know, there's a fee for a pharmacy to be operating, a license fee. There's licensing fee for fees for individual pharmacists and farm techs. There's different programs that they mandate and then charge you to be a part of. So all these fees are going towards this entity. And you see there's a giant number. It's millions of dollars per year. And then they don't, all they say is that their their biggest by far expenditure is labor, but they don't tell you how many people are working there. No. And you would, even if you do the math with say a hundred employees, which I don't know that they have a hundred employees, I would be surprised if they do, but it still works out to quite a high salary per employee. Oh, for and sure I mean, it does. Quite a high salary, <laughs> like yeah. w- more than me as a yeah. pharmacist. So, uh, you know, I don't know. It's it's odd, and it's it's always bothered me a little. So, what if, that in there. what if health employers paid for part of that? Do you well, think, do you see that as something that would be what used to happen well? frequently in community pharmacy? Would be the owner back in the the days when pharmacy was profitable, and yeah, I mean it's still profitable, but when it was, you know, not as competitive. Yeah. If you worked for a chain or an independent, usually the owner of that store would would pick up those fees. And, you know, that would just be it was kind of like a courtesy of you being a part of that team. They would they would pay for those. So in that respect, at least it was the, you know, it, it wasn't on the burden of the pharmacist specifically to pay for that each year. It was the the commercial model that was supporting it. But even mm-hmm. that is not really fair because the college is the one, uh, they are the ones who are making the rules. And a lot of times the rules are the things that get in the way of not only patient care, but in sometimes profit, uh, profitability, right? Yeah. Either through strange lines in the sand that are then policed by uh, pharmacare and through audits or whatever it may be. So it's confusing, but at least if it was the, if it was the health authorities, who was, you know, if it was through that, like if health authorities were paying for nurses' uh, uh, fees, then it would at least be the taxpayer who's who's paying into something that's actually it regulating would. a professional body that is in their interest to to regulate, right? Yeah. I mean, you could say, well, there's some interest in, there should be an interest in healthcare professionals being regulated because you want to maintain the integrity of your, your profession, but it would have to be done much, much better than it's being currently done for that to be the case. Oh, yeah. I mean, I <clears> throat> wouldn't throat> pay for the service I'm getting right now if I had a choice. I would fire everybody. Yeah. Kind of like what the government is doing now. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, it really creates angst. And I, going back to my example about fatigue and about the policy that, you know, you can't leave your patients and it sort of sets that policy of you can't leave your patients, you can't abandon your post, so to speak. It sets up the employer to the language of that allows the employer to stretch the capacity of the nurse, in my example, to the max. Mm-hmm. And I'm paying for that. Yeah. I'm paying for the language that allows my employer to take advantage of me. That's what I mean. It's like paying for your own private police force to follow you around yeah. and give you tickets for stuff. Yeah, totally. And nobody else. Like somebody else can do something crazy right in front of you, but that police officer, they're not going to do anything about that. They're focused on you. You know, it's yeah. like, 
Okay. So I don't know how this got started, who, whose idea this was. And maybe yeah. it made sense in the beginning, but it doesn't make sense now. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Good example. And I, I know that you're not alone in that angst. It's, <laughs> it's very, very prevalent. And it, it, every year when fees would come up for the professional license, that was the talk of the nursing station for sure. Right. Yeah. Cause it always went up. There was one always year that up. the union would give you a bit of a rebate and I can't remember how much it was, unfortunately, but, but generally speaking over the course of my career, it went up annually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just thought I'd throw that in there. Yeah. Good one. So the kind of the last one that I was going to talk about and I, I was titling it around, you know, the experience of thinking about the experience of trauma and, and grief and how that contributed, but also like, I was trying to think of, there were lots of singular dramatic events that I saw and was a part of, but I was trying to think of what was the craziest day and a few come to mind, but the one that I was going to share was I was trying to think how many traumatic deaths in one day did I see? And the most was, was three within a half a day and uh, working in a busy ER and, you know, that was packed by that time I wasn't in charge of the ER, but I was working as a, as a, my title was a trauma nurse. And that was generally for a period of time. That was where I was always posted was in the trauma room. And I always had this, this other nurse who was my partner and we were, we worked every single shift together. We were kind of inseparable in our, in our assignments and stuff. And uh, there was a, a day I can remember where it was three incidents back to back of cardiac arrests of a traumatic death and I remember we'd gotten through two of them within the first, you know, three hours of the shift and were already exhausted and not even processing at, at a couple of hours past a traumatic incident or seeing someone die or seeing a cardiac arrest that you've tried to save. You're not, you're not at the stage of processing that because you're, there's still stuff to do. Your shift is still going. And I can remember, you know, two incidents down and I'm maybe cleaning up or reorganizing or restocking part of the trauma room. And this friend of mine screamed my name from across the ER. And I'll, that, that sound, I'll just, I'll never forget that. Like hearing mm-hmm. my name get sort of screamed across an ER. And it was a third one, a third incident. And by the end of it, I, I think I remember look, us looking at each other and we both looked like just so haggard and looked like we had been through a, a boxing match just right. so physically exhausted from CPR physically mm-hmm. exhausted it's a, it, trying to save someone's life is a very there's a lot of physical exertion there and adrenaline yeah and, and adrenaline <clears throat> and cortisol and mm-hmm. just three in one half of a day and then you have to keep going and I look back at that incident or that day and I just think oh my god how did I do that yeah, and, that's a lot that, for anybody. Yeah, and I, it's not that uncommon, especially if you go to a larger center like like BGH or Surrey or Royal Columbian or wherever. It can happen anywhere. But there's only so much that the human brain can compartmentalize and take within a day, I think, mm-hmm. or within a year, within, within any time frame. But cramming three traumatic deaths within half a day and that's an example of something where I, I don't think I gave myself or gave those moments enough credit 
where it was just about, and I certainly didn't assert myself well enough to, to say, I need a break here. I need to mm-hmm. call in sick the next day. Yeah. And even because I, I think that we also judge that based on if we felt upset, if we felt outwardly like emotional, but even if you didn't just thinking about like what you went through, what you saw and experienced and did, there needs to be more credit given to that, whether or not you were like felt rattled and, and upset about that. There needs to be some, some time there. And that's just like sort of the, it's an unnatural part of the job. It's an expectation of the job that is just embedded in it. But, uh, yeah, I just think, holy smokes, how did I continue to work that day? And then came back for probably two or three more shifts that week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's what happens to healthcare professionals who, are working in that kind of an environment. I think over time, if you don't have the opportunity to sit with that for a sec and just whether or not you're having any, I think a lot of people might go through that and say, well, I don't feel anything. You know, I just, it's part of my job. What do you, you know, it's not a problem or whatever. Yeah. But I think if there was an effort made to take some time after each event like that, even if it was say 20 minutes, just to sit there and kind of, Catch your breath physically, but also just let your mind absorb what's happened, listen to what's going on, and allow some initial processing to take place. You know, yeah. I, I've, I've wondered how that would impact our uh, post-traumatic stress numbers down the line if people in those fields took the time to do that. Mm-hmm. And I mean, of course, there's sometimes there's some fields you can do that, some fields you can't. Obviously, if you're in war, you know, if you're a soldier and you're out there in the middle of a battle, you, you're not going to be able to stop after every death and and think about it. But there's got to be some kind of a, a processing that takes place there. And maybe the people who find a way to do that efficiently somehow are the ones who get through those circumstances relatively unscathed, as opposed to the ones who just keep piling it on, right? Not mm-hmm. taking it aside, just going, you know what, instead of thinking about this, I'm just going to do the next thing. And the next yeah. death happens and the next and the next until one day you, you know, find that you're having a nervous breakdown or whatever. Yeah. And coming back to triggers, whether or not that trigger leads to, to a substance using behavior, even just the psychological trigger, the trigger within just for your general state of mental health, as you continue to work and encounter more situations, there's, like I said, there's the environment there's the sounds, there's the sights of it. There's how it feels to do CPR. There's how it feels to see a a grieving family. And if you, I think, you know, we know that the, the, the brain has a way of kind of protecting us. I know for myself that I was, those events were linked and that I could feel years later, I would go through a, a, a trauma patient, have a patient die of a cardiac arrest or something. And that I thought of past events, past events came up and past emotions came up, you know, emotional flashbacks came up and, and mental flashbacks, not in the like dramatic Hollywood, you know, version, Mm -hmm. but, but I, I know that my brain was connecting it. And then like, I was adding another file to the filing cabinet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There's so many sensory things that can, that happen in one 
trauma incident. And then you go through another one and it's like beep, beep, beep. And all these flashes and loud things. And they just have, that has to have a psychological effect on our brain and how we process that trauma and how it brings us back to that bring, brings us back to maybe a past one that was really difficult. I think it sets people up for, for difficulty there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I've got an even more serious situation uh, to talk about and discuss for my last one. And that is the fact that in pharmacy, we are still using fax machines. Oh my God. Same in the hospital. Yeah. This, <laughs> this situation continues to this day. People won't believe that this is a, is something that's, we actually, you know, there's rules we have to follow regarding the way faxes are dealt with. We're talking about facsimiles here. The transmission of paper to paper through devices that I think were created back in the seventies, maybe. Yeah. Something like that. I don't know if like, do, do, does Gen Z know what a fax machine is? I if doubt they, it. And probably not, but when they enter the healthcare <laughs> field, they will find out. Yeah. And it's so ridiculous. We've got, you know, we can transmit all sorts of electronic files. I mm-hmm. can do my banking online and buy cryptocurrency. You can do all sorts of crazy things online and it's secure. You know, we have we have video conferencing technology that allows for secure relaying of information, you know, keeping confidentiality in mind. We use that in the healthcare sector. But uh, but still for some reason we are tied to this ancient machine that malfunctions at least oh, I don't know, once a day. Yeah. You know, and the malfunction is significant because you know, in a busy store, my rough estimate is that one in 1,000 faxes disappear. They just disappear. So it's sent on the one end. It says confirm. So that person, clinic, whatever, thinks the thing has been sent, and it disappears into the ether on the other side. So <laughs> if you're the poor you know, uh, customer patient who's looking for a prescription at a pharmacy, and you go in there and they don't know where it is, chances are you're one of those one in 1000 where the fax has been vaporized. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I just, it hurts a part of my mind, I think. And, and it makes it difficult sometimes when I'm at the end of a, a long day and I hear the fax machine go, and it's another one of those things that makes a whole bunch of stupid <laughs> yeah. noises, right? Yeah. A beep, beep, a beep, beep, beep. And <laughs> you don't know if the things are half the time, the paper jams, whatever it's, it's just, it's a heavy straw on a camel's back that is already yeah. sometimes weighed down by nonsense. Yeah. You know, and I just wish we could get rid of a few of those analog, ancient, antiquated systems. Yeah. That's all. That's yeah. all. I just, I had to mention that. I was going to say to you about with the emphasis that's on confidentiality and in the world of the fact system, the safeguard of confidentiality is the cover sheet that is real that is relying on the fact that if if a fax is sent to the wrong address or wrong number that the individual on the receiving end will see a fax cover sheet and look no further that's right oh i see that i'm not meant to read the rest of this so i'll simply turn a blind eye and fire it off at the uh, proper address <laughs> 
Good God. Yeah. Yeah. So that's uh, that's it for me. Did you? No, I, th- I think that's a great place to end it. Okay, okay. Ended on a light note and an absurd, but very relatable piece of angst. Agreed. All right, Corey, we'll leave it there. And that's it for our <laughs> stress test too. Thanks for listening, yes. everybody. Thank you. See you next time.